Hi, Tim. Hi, Carl. How are you? Fine. Just waiting Good. for Carol to join us. There she is. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hi, Carol. Welcome hi, to. Hi, Carl. Yes. Hi. Welcome to both of you to a life in biography. This is the third part of our discussion about the principles, practices, what I like to call mechanics of biography. Uh, we don't know, at least I don't know, if this is going to be our last podcast or not. Whether we run out of topics or not, we'll see. Uh, this time, uh, I'm going to, as last time, I'm going to turn it over to Tim, who's going to tell us a little bit about his forthcoming biography of Mary Hemingway and read a passage from it. Tim? Carl, thank you very much. I think that rather than saying anything in, in advance, I will simply read a vignette and then uh, perhaps speak to it, if that works for you. That's good, and, and we can review it on the spot. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Friday, May 26, 1944, was a bright, warm day, and Mary strolled with Irwin Shaw up Rathbone Place to the lunch club at the White Tower Bistro. Instead of her correspondence uniform, Mary wore a tailored jacket and skirt her seamstress had cut down from one of her husband's civilian suits, and a pair of nylon stockings an admirer from the States had recently smuggled to her flat. When she put on her sunglasses, Shaw said she looked fresh from Hollywood. Since Irwin knew how women dressed in Hollywood, Mary appreciated the compliment. As they neared the bistro on Percy Street, several men uh, cast admiring glances. One romantic soul swept off his hat and bowed. Mary felt good about herself. The bistro owner, John Styas, tended tables in front of the White Tower. He greeted Miss Mary with a wave, and she blew him a kiss. The beautiful weather was drawing people outside, and Mary expected a full house at the lunch club. Inside the restaurant, they climbed the stairway to the first floor. Coming up, Shaw shouted. A large bearded man turned to watch. He stared at Mary as if trying to fix her features in his memory, and the intensity of his gaze made her turn away. Shaw followed Mary across the room to the reserved table, and she took a seat against the wall. When she looked up, she saw the imposing stranger continuing to stare at her. His temples showed gray, and he had oiled his longish hair. A gigantic beard formed a dark brown hedge with white sideburns extending under his jaw. Mary thought his brown eyes were beautiful, lively and perceiving and friendly. Shaw saw her looking at the big fellow and casually mentioned, that's Ernest Hemingway. The room was so hot, Mary removed her jacket. She had refused her mother's advice to wear a bra since the age of 12 because she found them uncomfortable. As Mary slipped off the tight jacket, a passing airman commented, the warmth does bring things out, doesn't it? Mary took a long drag on her camel cigarette, and as she exhaled, she noticed Hemingway's eyes trained on her, and he smiled, stood up, and came over to her table. Hemingway was a big man, as tall as her father. He had broad shoulders, a barrel chest, and slim hips, and he looked fit 
and moved on the balls of his feet with the rhythm of a big cat. Hemingway towered over the table. Say, Shaw, he said, addressing Irwin, but looking at Mary. Introduce me to your friend. Ernest was 14 years older than Shaw and Kurt with the younger man. Shaw had recently told Mary that Hemingway's days at the top of the literary ladder were numbered because young writers, including himself, were writing about the war in a riveting style that would overtake the older novelists. Shaw introduced Ernest, who spoke softly and directly to Mary. Ernest told her he was a stranger in London and wondered if she could brief him on the state of hostilities. Ernest had a, a Midwestern accent and his voice was younger sounding than Mary had expected. He asked shyly if she would have lunch with him the next day. Mary was busy that weekend, but agreed to meet him on Monday. Ernest beamed with the happiest face she had seen in a long time. Ernest turned sideways to negotiate the narrow staircase. Mary's friends gossiped the second he disappeared, and Shaw feigned jealousy, saying it'd be nice knowing her. Mary regarded Ernest as another lonely man in a city full of lonely men, and it was not unusual for visiting journalists to ask her for a briefing. Still, celebrity is an aphrodisiac, and Mary had felt his commanding presence and was pleased he had asked her out. Ernest became infatuated with Mary. She exuded self-confidence and sexual appeal, and he could not wait to see her again. His mood improved, improved dramatically, and his brother Lester noted, in a couple of days, Ernest was feeling personally admired again, and life was very pleasant around him. Mary spent the weekend at Times Country Retreat. In good weather, Mary and her friends sprawled in the blankets on the lawn and read or rode bicycles or hiked through the countryside. She went for a walk with Bill Walton and mentioned her upcoming lunch with the famous novelist. Walton revealed that Lester had earlier asked about Mary's whereabouts to arrange a meeting with Ernest. Slowly, Mary realized the meeting with Hemingway was far more intriguing than she had first imagined, and she wondered what Ernest had in mind. Thank you for listening. Carol, what do you think? Uh, it's quite riveting. I love hearing it. Uh, you know, the whole scene is before us. And of course, as a reader, I love that. And as a biographer, my mind says, how does he know that? <laughs> <laughs> a very good question. Uh, is that a question? <laughs> from what I know of your book, um, you know, this is really a great scene for you to read because it pulls so many threads together and, and leaves so much open at the same time. But yes, that is a question on behalf of other biographers who might be listening. How do you know all those things? Right. It's, it's a very good question. And it wasn't an easy thing to find out. There, there is an account of the meeting in uh, Mary's published memoir. Uh, she makes further comments about it in an unpublished memoir uh, in the JFK. Uh, Schneerson, who is Erwin Shaw's biographer, comments on parts of it. And uh, Lester Hemingway, uh, in his uh, book, My Brother, 
comments on parts of it. Uh, and uh, Bill Walton uh, gave an interview uh, to Rosemary Bruel, which also comments on aspects of it. So what I tried to do was to pull it together in a way that made it seem like a scene. Um, so um, that's, that's what I relied upon. I think it's quite successful and, um, and really illustrates one of my favorite themes as a teacher that, uh, that you have to braid all these things together rather seamlessly if you can. You know, I liked your use of the word braiding the other day when you were talking about the elements you braided together to create uh, a, a sense of Ray Carver. Uh, I, I, I just, I think it's a very nice um, simile metaphor, I guess. <laughs> Carl. Well, it's a winner. Um, one of the things that you have to deal with uh, when you're dealing with someone like Hemingway, about whom there are many, many books and biographies, uh, and of course, Mary appears in, in many of those biographies as well as the full biographies, uh, is to present the figure um, freshly. Um, even though we know so much about Hemingway, those of us who have read about him as I have for years and read his work for years, um, we, always, we always look for those little details that will delight us, that will make us feel we're, we're there with the subject. And, and I think you present that. And as you talked about your sources, for example, some people will know some of this material because, because they have read about Mary in the other books. But as you said, there's unpublished material here that you're, you're relying on as well. And then there's the fact that uh, you're, you're having to put it all together, as you say, make a scene. Uh, and um, that's, that's where the, in a sense, the skill, the art comes in, in marshalling all that evidence and figure, figuring out how to deploy it. Uh, and I think that's, that's good. Uh, I like, you know, the, the whole idea of Mary looking at this huge, huge, huge man and at least to begin with, it seems, uh, what does he have to do with her? Uh, and gradually, as you're beginning to show toward the end of the passage you read, she's beginning to understand that he has, he has more in mind than just a briefing about the current scene. Th thanks. That's actually exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> oh, good. Good. That, that, it's... it's um, it's not easy to do. Uh, and uh, Carol's question's good, you know, how do you know all this? Mm -hmm. And often readers will, even though uh, biographies, you know, most biographies have source notes and documentation. Nevertheless, people will sometimes read this and think, oh, he must have made up some of that. It's just, it's too vivid. It's, it's, too, it's too, um, too immediate, I guess. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, all of these parts goes back to my idea of hermeneutics, parts and holes, that, that when, you, when you create that whole out of the parts, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The fact that you took this or that from this source or that source, it's important to know that. Uh, scholars want to know that. Readers sometimes want to know that if they check the notes. But in the end, it's got to be something more than that. 
Mm -hmm. uh, go back to Collingwood's idea of, you know, what's a real, who's, who's a real historian? Uh, and he makes this distinction between scissors and paste, uh, really chroniclers who take a bit of this and that and they sort of mash it all together and historians who become their own authorities because they've so absorbed the material that it becomes something more than the individual sources from which it came. That's interesting. I forgot to mention one other source, which was actually vitally, vitally important to me. <clears throat> and that is that I, I visited the White Tower restaurant. Ah, you know, yes. <laughs> I, I, wa I did the walk from, I, from where Irwin Shaw and Mary were coming. Uh, and her office was not really very far from the uh, the White Tower, uh, and so I arrived, and it, you know it was it remarkably looked v very similar to the uh, restaurant uh, that was a hangout for uh, U.S. Uh, journalists uh, during the war, uh, and I I thought, oh my God, I, I have to go in and take a look, so I <laughs> I went in, and it's now called the House of Ho. Uh, <laughs> But it, but it didn't seem to be a Chinese restaurant because there was a Polish woman uh, who was sort of guarding. Well, she looked, appeared to be setting tables and so on. And I asked her, Can, may I go upstairs to take a look at the meeting room? And she said, oh, uh, no, I'm sorry, you can't because there's a meeting taking place. There's a lunch club taking place. It just struck me as so remarkable because that was the very room that, Mary and her friend Connie Ernst uh, set up a lunch club to get around the restrictive rules of the uh, U.S. military. She, she herself was a captain and had the ability to enter officers' clubs, uh, but uh, Connie couldn't. And they wanted a place where they could uh, meet with their, their friends. Uh, many of them uh, were journalists or others who didn't have military uh, status or not, uh, not officer status. And so they created this lunch club, which became very successful. And I just thought it was amazing to, to walk toward the thing, find that it's renamed the House of a Ho, meet the Polish lady and be told, oh, you can't go up there because there's a lunch club. <laughs> yeah. Marvelous. I, I'm old enough to have been to the White Tower when it was the White Tower. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, there, there's this, it was this publisher who published my uh, first biography of Marilyn Monroe, the British edition, Ernie Hecht, who was a real old timer. And one of the things he did is he took me to the White Tower. Well, that's, was it still run by uh, the Greek Cypriot John Stias then? You know, I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. Um, I have this, it's a terrible fact that I'm a biographer with a terrible memory. <laughs> I don't believe that. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not certain. <laughs> I've read enough of your stuff, Carl, to know you have a pretty good memory. Well, say. it's it's a good short-term memory while I'm doing the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Yeah. These that, these, these stories remind me that when I was working on the my first biography of Raymond Carver. I really tried to go everywhere, and I went to the town where he was born, Klatskanai, mm -hmm. uh, Oregon, and uh, I met the local newspaper person, and I actually ended up being able to walk the hallways in the building where the maternity clinic was, 
1938 when he was born wow. and it and it hadn't really been redecorated i don't think it had old linoleum sheet linoleum flooring and uh which made a particular sound when you walked on it and uh i can't remember how much of that got into the book but it meant a lot to me to actually walk that hallway and imagine his mother there in the midst of the depression having this baby yeah. you know i also found out somehow you know how much the doctor bill was and Oh, that's great. All that kind of thing that took me way back. <laughs> you know, Robert Caro talks a lot about uh, the importance of place, sense of place. And uh, we, I can't, I haven't been able to visit all the places that my subjects have been in, but I try as far as possible to do that. When I was in Swampscott, Massachusetts, where uh, Walter Brennan grew up, one of my biographical subjects, I went to the city hall to look for records of Brennan and because he had gone to school there and, and his youth was spent there and uh, got to talking to somebody at the town hall who knew about Walter Brennan and knew something about the family. And he said, you know, I know the woman who uh, lives in the house where Walter Brennan grew up. And uh, I said, oh, I would really, you know, you know, I'd like to. I had a sense of where the house was, but I, I didn't know too much. And he said, oh, yeah. And he told me exactly where he said, but she she really doesn't. She doesn't like visitors. Uh, you're, you know, you're probably not going to be able to see the house. And, you know, I had no introduction. I hadn't written to her, didn't know she existed. And uh, I went over to the house and knocked on the door. And she came to the door, looked at me sort of warily. And I began to talk. I said, you know you live in the house that Walter Brennan grew up in. She said, oh, I know that. Uh, and I started to, I started to, you know, tell her, you know, I come all, all this way uh, to look at where he had grown up. And I was really curious about the house because his father had been an architect and had done certain things in the house. And before you know it, she had me in there uh, showing wow. me everything about the house and much of it had not been altered at all and where things had been altered she told me you know what what had what had changed uh that's it, one of the things about being a biographer it's kind of like being a stockbroker and cold calling uh, yeah. that is sometimes you come yeah. with an introduction and connections but sometimes you just have to wing it you're on the spot you know god knows if you're going to have another opportunity and you just, you have to try it, you know, and you have to be prepared for rejection and hope that there'll be acceptance. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I mean, I've, I, I visited all of the places virtually that uh, Mary and Ernest visited. And I, I did so because I found that when I started to write, if I had been to the place, I just sort of, I had a feeling for it. I had an understanding for the, the and I could I could imagine the scene and then you know the, the documentary things you have and all all the other things you have you can draw on and uh, put them together in a way that I think sounds more authentic than if you just uh, you know looked at a picture or something like that. Well, for your own satisfaction, and it, it gives you a sense of authority. You know, even if you don't say in the book, oh, I was there. I mean, you might say that in the acknowledgments or in the notes or someplace. You're not likely to say it in the in the narrative and most kinds of biographies, unless they're very self-reflexive ones where the where the book is as much about the biographer as the subject. 
mm-hmm. but just it's it's almost like you know journalists talk about deep background or something you know mm-hmm. i've often had interviewed people who didn't want me to use their names and in one case with my sontag biography um the person really didn't want to say anything uh and i said you know just tell me i won't use it at all in the book mm-hmm. uh, and actually in that case that didn't work either <laughs> she, <laughs> she was so frightened of my subject she still wouldn't talk so you win some and you lose some well, you know, she'll... talking. About... oh i'm sorry no go ahead carol sorry talking about this reminds me of one of my worries now that we might be losing that sense of the physicality because there's so much we can do remotely mm. with the internet. Uh, and it's certainly easier than traveling, especially now. But uh, I do think it's a, it's something we hope not to lose the sense of the geography and the places and, and that deep background that you can get. It takes time, but it's really worth doing if you can do it. I did less of it with Alice Adams. Uh, the neighborhood, the neighborhoods where she'd lived had all been gentrified and no one was ever home. And, you know, I left notes and I wrote letters, but I, I didn't get into most of those houses in the same way I did with Carver. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's frustrating, um, but uh, I think vitally important to go to the places to follow in the footsteps, to drink the wine and eat the food and smell the smells of the place if you can. Mm-hmm. Tim, before we forget, tell people when they're actually going to be able to read your book. Uh, it's scheduled uh, to come out uh, in March, March twenty twenty two. We're Going through, it's going through a line by line editing process right now, and uh, uh, that's the that's the proposed uh, publication date. Good. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for asking that question. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, uh, I think we we have quite a few uh, questions to talk about still. And perhaps we can just move into them. Is that does that work for you? Sure. Well, okay, uh, Carol, you're fine with that too. I, I hope. Absolutely. Okay, good. So last week we finished off uh, talking about uh, whether the biographer is responsible to the subject of the biography or to the family or or to the truth. And you were both both very clear that you feel responsible to tell a true story or as true as you can make it. We also touched on the question of authorized or unauthorized biographies, and you both uh, strongly oppose authorized biographies. But what about what about dealing with estates? Because even if the work is unauthorized, and maybe particularly if it is, uh, you have to uh, get access to letters and documents. Um, perhaps, Carol, we could begin with you, because I think you've had some pretty interesting experiences dealing with uh dealing with estates. Experience dealing with estates was with the Raymond Carver book. Uh, His widow, who is still living, uh, represented the estate, and that's where I had trouble. Um, It was a case of uh, a keeper of the flame. There's a a book and a movie and many things written about the keeper of the flame. 
I wrote her three or four times, received letters from her secretaries declining to help me and saying that she wasn't interested in a biography. And, you know, I guess I just didn't believe it. I wasn't so much concerned about the estate as I wanted to interview her because she had been with Raymond Carver for the last 10 years of his life. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be very difficult to write a book without meeting her and interviewing her. Um, I gradually heard that one reason she was so reluctant was because she didn't get along with Carver's first wife, former wife. And uh, I, by then, was talking to her occasionally. And that, that was kind of the crux of the issue. So for me, it wasn't so much about the estate and permissions mm -hmm. as about trying to reach this person. Um, I didn't give up. I my my sense of Raymond Carver by then was that he was formed by all the people around him and I really wanted to meet them all including her, mm -hmm. uh, her mother her brother the whole community he lived in in Port Angeles Washington for the last years of his life seemed very important to me so I uh, I attended a lecture she was giving at the University of Washington in Seattle and I stood in line with one of her books and introduced myself and she signed my book and acted nonplussed by the whole situation which gave me the nerve to write to her again one more time I think it was the fourth time and that letter said that I would be in Port Angeles the next week and I would hope to meet her and that I'd also like to meet her mother if she was available. Well, I got to Port Angeles, I checked into my motel and I started getting phone calls from a lawyer in Seattle. Huh. Uh, it was a weekend, so I wasn't able to return those phone calls successfully. And I spent my days in Port Angeles, eating in restaurants and walking in neighborhoods and looking at the creek where Raymond Carver used to fish and <laughs> all sorts of things. But I didn't meet Tess Gallagher or her mother. And I didn't darken their doors either, luckily, because it turned out that she was taking out a restraining order on me. And that's what the lawyer was calling about. Wow. I, didn't, I didn't actually receive the restraining order until I was back home in Wisconsin and a sheriff showed up at my front door on a holiday weekend, actually when we were having a <laughs> neighborhood party. <laughs> that's a pretty good biographer's story. <laughs> so, so, that's, uh, so I finally got her message that she didn't want to talk to me. And she put special emphasis in her restraining order on her idea that, that I seem to be stalking her mother. Uh, wow. That's why the judge gave her the order. Um, I did get that order overturned. I didn't think that would be a, a great thing to have. I don't know. My husband and I got a bit paranoid. I think we were afraid I'd find myself in an elevator with her or, or something and be within 50 feet of her and get myself arrested. So <laughs> we pretty easily got that order overturned because there wasn't much basis for it. And... Uh, but the expense would be considerable. It was $400. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, by, we should talk about how do you pay for biographies. That's yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I've, I've just written that down. I had something <laughs> close uh, to it. It's a very good topic, actually. Another source of income, I think. Yeah. Usually, uh, so that that's my uh, most dramatic biographer story, I guess. Oh, that's uh, a pretty good one. And well, let me round it off though, because because she's the keeper of the flame. She's written a great deal about her relationship with Raymond Carver. And finally, to, to write what I think is a fair, if not completely objective book, I had a lot of material to draw on from mm -hmm. her own writing and her memoirs and interviews she's given and, uh, and court, uh, court documents I was able to get from lawsuits she's had with his children. So... Uh, I didn't have that personal conversation with her, but but ultimately, I think I was able to write a book that uh, took note of her important role in Carver's life. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great story. Uh, Carl, what about your experiences dealing with uh, estates or obtaining permission yeah. to get access to documents? Dealing with estates or dealing with the law? <laughs> well, but, you know, well, well, I'd be happy to hear another oh, long story. How am I going to top Carol's story? My my recommendation always to to biographers is to marry a lawyer, uh, which which is, which is what I've done, uh, and have her write one of my biographies with me, yeah. uh, the Dantag biography. I got introduced to this whole idea of literary estates. My first biography was of Marilyn Monroe, and there was, in a sense, an estate. Uh, and in fact, quite a bit of material uh, has turned up over the last several decades of uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe's writing and drawing and uh, uh, a number of things, uh, some remarkable letters that she wrote, uh, some of which no one knew existed because they were sort of locked in a storeroom. But that's that's a long story. But the second biography of Lillian Hellman, she had an authorized biographer. There was another biographer, William Wright, who had published a biography of Hellman. Uh, we're going back to the mid-1980s. And um, um, uh, there was another biographer who had started work, and then she quit. And in fact, turned over her material to me, which was a, a, great, a great boon, because she had done a number of interviews with some very important, very important people. Anyway, um, I went into it as an unauthorized biographer, uh, very, um, the way I, the way I, I pick my subjects is not, not a very rational or uh, prudent one. Uh, I, I, I just decide that I'm right for that subject. Mm -hmm. So what happened with Lillian Hellman was I was interviewing the poet Richard Wilbur and a number of people had not talked to me. I ended up interviewing more than 100 people, but there were people who wouldn't talk to me who were loyal uh, to the authorized biographer. Hellman, before she died, left instruction. She was dead by the time I began working on a biography of Hellman. Uh, but Hellman had left instructions to talk to William Abrams, her authorized biographer, who, by the way, never wrote the book. Uh, and he tied up everything, including her archive. Well, I didn't know that till I talked to the poet Richard Wilbur. I was interviewing him. And Wilbur says, well, you know, it's going to be kind of tough. And I'm thinking, well, he means, you know, some people won't talk to me. I can deal with that. No, no. 
Wilbur lets out, he says, well, he said, you know, the archive at Texas had been closed. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. I didn't say I didn't say that. I just said, "Yeah, that's that's kind of tough." Uh, <laughs> after the, after the interview with Richard Wilbur, I remember I was teaching I was teaching in Detroit at Wayne State University at the time, and I was walking down the street, and I I said to one of my colleagues, or I just sort of blurted it out. I said, "You know, Williams has been closed." I didn't know what he, what I thought he was going to be able to do about it, <laughs> but I, I, I had to tell somebody. Well, it turned out, of course, when you're unauthorized, you have to be quite resourceful. And what I found out was that Hellman's archive, until she had closed it, had been open for more than 20 years, that there were several really good dissertations that dealt with primary source material that was in the archive. And when I got through with those dissertations, and also Dashiell Hammett's papers were in the same archive at the University of Texas, and they were open. By the time I got through all that material in the dissertations, I had, in a sense, kind of rebuilt the archive because, you know, Ph.D. students quote a lot. Mm -hmm. So so I, I, I got to use it. Anyway, that taught me something. It taught me that I could do that kind of book, uh, that I, I wasn't going to get somebody's imprimatur on, on what I was doing. Uh, and uh, so I just kept making it tough on myself. So then I did Martha Gellhorn, who was very hostile, who didn't take out a restraining order, but certainly had a, a law firm send threatening letters, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, like Carol, I went to the neighborhood. I went to Gellhorn's cottage in Wales. <laughs> and um, uh, my wife said to me, well, what are you going to do now? <laughs> and I, I, I walked onto her property uh, and she was pretty, she wasn't there. But I thought, what am I going to do if I confront my subject? But but it, it just so happened that she wasn't there. <laughs> uh, but the the what what the estates tend to do is is they they think they're going to stop you if if you say if if they say you can't quote you know we're not going to give you any permission to quote. So I never applied for permission to quote. Right. Uh, with Rebecca West, uh, I dealt with her nephew, who was her literary executor and heir really nice chap. I brought up it only once because I did want to quote from West. I said, well, how do you feel about my quoting from work of permissions? I said, do I need to ask you? And he said, well, only in the first instance. I didn't even know what the hell he meant. In the first instance? What did that mean? I just ignored that. Uh, and then when the book came, you know, when the book was done and I showed it to them, no one ever brought up the issue again. So I just quoted it well. And just assume that I had permission and no one called me on it. Um, with, in other cases, like the Plath biography, the book was vetted by an attorney. I was surprised. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast. I had a wonderful um, attorney, Ellis Levine, who was also a poet, who didn't take out my quotations of Plath, but showed me how, through fair comment, I could include those quotations. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I know a lot of biographers are vexed about this, about permissions and so on, uh, and feel they can't write a good book if they can't quote. That's not true. I think we've talked about this too. Your own voice has to be in the book. And although quotations are wonderful, and you, you, you do need to use them at certain strategic points, your own voice can get lost if you do too much quoting, which is what often <laughs> happens with academic books. That's, that's a Great point. You know, uh, I, I've already mentioned that your uh, uh, Confessions of a Serial Biographer was a very important book for me at the time I, where I, I, the stage I was at in 
writing my book because it just made me feel a lot bolder. And <laughs> I, oh, good. I think of you as being maybe the boldest biographer I know of. <laughs> he might not be good, but he is bold. <laughs> no, I think I think the goodness comes from the boldness, actually. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, look, uh, I think we're going to move on. I think we've talked enough about estates, unless somebody wants to to offer something further. I'm thinking of moving to a sort of a different uh, topic altogether. Um, and this is really, what are the limits on the biographer's ability to use the tools of fiction? Um, and there are a number of examples of how uh, fiction or the tools of fiction might be used uh, to set scenes to, or to use dialogue or to enter the mind of the subject or to speculate. Um, what, what are the limits? How far can you go? What's the difference between, in some of these cases, fiction or creative nonfiction and uh, a biographical uh, technique? Carol, would you like to start us off on this? Sure. Um, I think we touched on this a bit when we were discussing Tim's vignette. Uh, and that's exactly why I asked the question, because I knew we were coming up to this topic. Uh, you can write a scene that, that may sound like fiction, but so thereby using the tools of fiction, but you, you can't make anything up. You must have sources for it. Um, so if you're going to use dialogue, certainly you have to have some other source for that dialogue. Um, I tend, and I think it's because I have an academic background, I tend to explain some of that in the text, uh, you know, saying mm -hmm. as, as Erwin Shaw remembered or whatever. Yep. Uh, I think that can slow down the story and, and I like the way that you avoided doing that, Tim. <laughs> that, was, that was good, it made your scene move well. I guess the main thing I wanted to say to this topic is you should be using all the techniques of storytelling, but not creating fiction. Mm -hmm. You want a narrative. You want to you're telling a story, but fiction is not what you're doing. Uh, there is such a thing as a historical novel, but that's not what biographers are doing. And there are a lot of there's a lot of historical fiction now. And a lot of fiction that crosses the line, I think, into biography. But mm. if we are biographers, we are not writing about the girl with the pearl earring in a painting that, you know, Vermeer, is it Vermeer? Whoever did that, uh, we, are, we are rooted in the research. And Carl, uh, why don't you weigh on on this? I'm sure you have thought about it and have a lot of views. Yes, I've certainly done what you do, Tim, that is I do set scenes or do create scenes. There's in my Hellman biography a scene when she testifies before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a, that's a reconstruction. Mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed her lawyers. She had two of them. Um, both of them were quite forthcoming. We went to the hearing room where she testified and I actually paced off the room. It was about the size of a football field. And I say things like that. My scene has d details mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I, have a, I, I give the reader a sense of where Helen was below 
the sort of uh, dais platform on which these congressmen were uh, and tell you where the press is. And I do something else, which I haven't done that often in my biographies. I, uh, as she's entering the building uh, to testify and going up the steps and, there, and there's an elevator, I use, I go into the second person. I say you, hmm. uh, as if it's, if it's you are testifying. And the reason I did it is I, I wanted to give the reader a sense of just how formidable, how nerve wracking, you know, what this was like almost second by second. And so I'm, I made it happen as if it was happening to the reader of the biography. I don't think I've ever done that since then. Hmm. But that's, that's one of the things I have, I have done to, to create that sense of immediacy. And again, I had a lot of detail to work with because I had these wonderful interviews with the lawyers hmm. um, who, who supplied this material. I don't use dialogue. You know, so I, I think it's happened that biographers have taken, you know, words from letters mm -hmm. uh, and, and made a dialogue out of them. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. Maybe there's a justification for that, but that makes me kind of uneasy mm -hmm. uh, as if, you know, it's, it's a, you are there, but it's really, it, it's not exactly a fake, but it's, it's, it's sort of appealing to people say when they like a biography, well, it's just like a novel. Uh, and so the, the biography can be, you know, tempted in doing that. I'm really interested in this this notion about uh, oh, it's speculation. If you speculate, you should say you speculate. Uh -huh. I like words like probably, likely, yeah. yes. maybe. I don't like must have been because I don't know what the hell that means. Yeah, I mean, it, if it must have been, then it is. <laughs> you know, must have been just it just bothers the hell out of me. I don't like that. To enter the mind of the subject um, is an interesting notion. Because people say, well, you can't get into somebody else's mind. Now, that's true. But, um, and I described this in an earlier podcast of mine about Faulkner. This was a man who was inaccessible. He gave interviews, it's true, but he didn't keep diaries. He didn't keep journals. He kept a hell of a lot to himself. And he knew a lot of things and he had a lot of interest. You won't find a documentary record of this. Or sometimes he'll say a sentence or two about something, like when he's working on a movie. And there's he worked on a movie called The Left Hand of God. One sentence is, don't think this is going to make a good movie. Then he writes to somebody else and he says, I'm out here in Hollywood. Fantastic work. <laughs> and this occurs at the time just after he wins his Nobel Prize. And I won't go into all the details again, but what I tried to show there is something happened to him. Something was going on inside William Faulkner that made him write the screenplay the way he did. And that the elements in the character's life match up with what people were saying about Faulkner and some of the things he was saying, not about the screenplay, but about other things. And but, it's a that's a great insight. That's fantastic. It's a reading of the man's character. Uh, and uh, it's still maybe the finest piece of work I've ever done on three or four pages. Hmm. Uh, no reviewer has noticed it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if, they will, if they would attack it, but I, I present it uh, as, as, again, a, a kind of reconstruction. And I am. It's hubris, but I am, in a sense, entering his mind. That's really interesting. In my in my case, if I might just say, uh, sure. Mary uh, Mary wrote constantly. She needed to write, uh, 
And so we have uh, letters, uh, memoir, obviously, but journals, many journals or just notes. And I would, I, you know, going through our papers, would just come across a note, which would be uh, like an, un, give me an unbelievable insight into what she was thinking about a particular event. And uh, so I was able to uh, use these sort of her own writing on what she was thinking or how she was feeling. And uh, I found it, I found those, those scenes um, seem real. Well, they are real. That's really what she was experiencing. Carol, anything further to add on this point? Um, I agree that, yeah, you're not entering their mind in the sense of doing a kind of stream of consciousness, but if you, have, especially if you have their written work and their private journals, in the case of Raymond Carver, he didn't keep great journals, but his poems are very personal mm -hmm. and often helpful in this way. Alice Adams had lots of notebooks and journals and her fiction I understood through knowing, you know, through the uh, what Carl would call the hermeneutics of it. Uh, I under I really did feel that I knew what was personal and true in her fiction and what was invented. I mm -hmm. wrong from time to time, but I, I felt you can never confuse the two. You have to be clear in your text if you're taking something from a fictional work or a poem, but but there are ways of doing that deftly so you can be clear and still uh, do that, that reconstructing of what you believe was going on in the mind of the subject. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, we, I, I'm going to ask another question, Carl. I'm not sure how you feel, how much longer you want to go with this session. Um, but l let me tell you what the question is, and you'll have a sense of how much time it might take to answer it. I, I'm interested in, in uh, talking with you about the biographer's voice. Um, and are there circumstances in which the biographer enters the narrative? Uh, can the biographer become a character in the uh, in the narrative, uh, can the biographer uh, interject anecdotes or stories arising from their research that uh, may uh, help to uh, elucidate a general point that is being made? So the the, the general topic is what is the uh, the scope for the biographer's voice? It, is it a, it's a different voice? It's not uh, a scene setting voice. It's a voice which perhaps uh, judges the subject's personality or character. Um, that's the general area I'd like to move to. So well, I think we can do that. You know, it might take about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you start off then, Carl? Okay. Um, you know, it depends on the, on your relationship with the subject. In some cases, I've known the subject, as with Michael Foote, mm -hmm. uh, or like Boswell with Johnson, uh, where what the reader knows about the subject is very much about the interaction of the biographer with the subject. 
so that's the easiest way when you you know you bring in your own voice your own say you can bring in and because i've re tape recorded so much i can i can bring in verbatim dialogue you know without making up anything at all right uh, because i was with him side by side in so many different places at so many different times so in a sense that's an easy one uh to do uh early on uh, I sometimes wanted readers to know, in other words, you can say in the acknowledgments, you know, I interviewed this, this and person and that person, and so on. But what you what is hard to get at in biography is the drama of how you got it. You know, you can write an essay afterwards, you know, about working on Mary Hemingway and I talked to this person, that person and I went to his house and so on. That's hard to incorporate in the biography itself. You just kind of get annoyed you know, <laughs> the self-referential idea of the biographer. But there was a, for instance, there was a scene with Ephraim London, who was Lillian Hillman's attorney. And he represented her in her lawsuit against Mary McCarthy. when McCarthy had said, you know, Hillman is a liar, uh, you know, even when she uses and and the and but and so on. And she said this on the Dick Cavett show and, and uh, Hellman sued her. <laughs> uh, and uh, the lawsuit didn't come to anything because Hellman died. Um, but... Uh, I was very interested in, well, what would have happened? What was going through the lawyer's mind having to represent Lillian Hellman, who was also claiming, by the way, that she wasn't a public figure. Um, so I, I get to a point in the biography where I, in, you know, I, I indent it like a quotation. And I have this exchange, this dialogue exchange with the lawyer between him and me, because I want people, I wanted people to readers to see how I approached the question, how I got him to answer what you finally learn about the way he represented her and what he thought was going to happen in court if they ever got to court. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 another way of approaching it. There, there, there are others in Last Days of Sylvia Plath. I thought it was important to let readers know at the beginning that I was in England in 1963, just a couple months after she died. I was 15 years old. I knew nothing about Sylvia Plath, mm -hmm. how she had existed. Uh, but I knew what England was like in 1963 because I was in London. I was in Yorkshire where, you know, she had lived where Ted Hughes's family was. Mm -hmm. You know, I had I had I felt I had this intimate connection with the environment. And I've, I've been to England at least 40 times for different books and different reasons. So I just, I wanted to sort of lay that out at the beginning. And then later in the book, and I'll make this my last comment, um, El, El, El Vares, who has been interviewed many times, who's a friend of hers, a friend of Hughes's, a great champion of her poetry, wrote a book about suicide and his, his understanding of her suicide. He had been interviewed many times. So I thought it was important because I had read his papers and I knew there was something more to say that he was never willing to say. I, I, I have the reader walk along with me to his home in Hampstead as I go through, you know, what, what are my options here? What am I going to do? How am I going to get him, you know, to, to talk about some things which he may be reluctant to talk about? So you have to pick your spots, I guess I'm saying. Yeah, if I may say so, I thought that the uh, the scene uh, of you as a young man uh, in England uh, at the beginning of the Plath book was actually uh, very useful. It was, sort of, it was an authentic uh, view of that place at that time. And I, I, it worked for me. No, thank you. 
Carol, what about you? Um, should the biographer enter the narrative or become a character? or How do you feel about that? I, I think in special circumstances, such as those Carl just described, uh, it, it can serve a purpose. I, I guess I would just caution against being too egotistical about it. Be, be sure it's serving your story. <laughs> and then I think there are ways to do it. Uh, the one time I did it was in the epilogue to the Alice Adams book. Right. So it was set aside a bit from the story. Mm-hmm. And I think, and there are other ways of setting it aside. Carl mentioned a, an inset quote or something. Um, mm-hmm. Also footnotes. If you, ha- if your book sources are in endnotes, you can use an occasional footnote mm-hmm. to comment on your own text, which, which I think is kind of fun. Sometimes yeah, that's a really they're good They're personal. Yeah. Sometimes they're, uh, but they could also include this sort of thing. I can't remember if I've ever done that, but it would be a way to do it. I've only written about subjects that were deceased, so I didn't uh, haven't had the occasion to actually describe my relationship with a subject, other than finding Alice Adams' ashes. You know, and that had to be part of the story because. After she died, I was describing what had happened to her ashes. And as it turned out, I had found the urn in a closet and I I had to include that. Yeah, I actually, I happened to have your Alice Adams portrait of a writer open to that page. And if I might, I just like to read three lines. Um, We mixed in some bright, sweet petals and leaves. We added handfuls of dirt to refill the hole and washed our hands in a basin of water that Diana had thought to bring. It's it's remarkably, uh, we're right there. uh, And we're participating in a ceremony uh, marking the death of this amazing woman. I I really liked what you did there. I thought it uh, it gave an immediacy uh, and we the reader feels involved in, in the life and death of Alice Adams. Thank you. Yeah, very much so. Well, uh, we're at, uh, uh, we're fairly well along in this section, Carl. Uh, I've, yes. I've quite a, I'm afraid <laughs> I still have quite a few questions. Well, it sounds like we're going to go into part four. Uh, and actually, if we do part four, I want to pick up with what you're talking about now, the, the biographer inserting himself, because I have another example, and I don't, okay. I don't want to do it now. It's, it, it, it takes a, a little bit of explanation, and Carol just gave us a, a wonderful example. So we're warning you, listeners, there's going to be another part. <laughs> Well, thanks, well, Lottie. I think, I think there is if I have willing accomplices. Well, I'm finding it fun and very, uh, I, I'm learning a lot here. I like it. Well, that's terrific. I've learned a lot from both of you. I guess we'll wrap it up at this point and say to listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> have a bye good bye. week. Yep. Thank you both. You're thanks, welcome. Carol and Carl. See you. Yep. Bye-bye.